been argued by many that one of the key foundational issues for our time, for our day, is one of identity, one of self-worth. To be fair, it's a question that people have asked down the ages, but it's a modern obsession. It's everywhere. We're very clearly told that a better self-image, well, that's what you need to make your life good. One writer has put it like this. says, incantations for self-worth, self-love and self-acceptance ooze out of the TV, drift across radio waves and entice through advertising. From the cradle to the grave, self-promoters promise to cure all of society's ills. And these are big questions for us at whatever stage of life we're in. Questions we're just going to have to sort of scratch the surface this morning. Maybe have a chew through later this week. But they do force us to stop and think, where does my identity come from? What, what matters to you as people perceive you? Where do you find your self-worth? your self-image, your self-esteem? And perhaps where ought you find those things? So maybe it's about how successful you are in doing what you do through the week. Maybe in your job, are you, are you moving up the ladder? Are you getting the results that you want to get? Maybe it's grades at school. Maybe it's your A-level predictions. Maybe it's the university you go to or would like to go to. Maybe it's in relationships, maybe it's in marriage, or on the sports field, or as a parent, how are you doing compared to all the other parents? Do do your children embarrass you in public? Maybe it's in leading the Bible study that everyone says was great. Maybe it's in your cooking, maybe it's in sharing your faith with your friends. Maybe it's in your background. Actually, do you come from good stock? What do your parents do? What school did you go to? What university did you go to? Maybe it's in your acceptability to others. What do people think of you? Do people like you? Are you popular? And then there are industries that feed this one. What do you look like? What clothes do you wear? Why do you wear those clothes? Are you attractive? Or indeed in our modern age, the added complication of an online persona. How do you want others to perceive you on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr or Pinterest or all of those things? If they mean nothing to you, that's fine. But what kind of story are you telling there? What kind of identity are you building for yourself there? Why did you choose the profile picture that you chose? What does it tell us about you and what you think matters? Who are you? They're massive questions. The interesting thing in a room of this size is that we will have different things that we draw upon, different things that we each care about. So some couldn't care less about education and jobs or money, but for you it's relationships just having some really good friends that's where you find your esteem others find identity in what they look like it's being attractive to the opposite sex that's the be all and end all and you lose that and you've lost everything i read a statistic recently that 75 percent of teenage girls would like plastic surgery 
and 84% of teenage boys thought having a better body would improve their life. That's the culture around us. So is it what what you look like? For others, it's the rising up the ladder at work, or it's being top of the class, or it's having the best grades, it's having the nice car, it's being in the right postcode. We're all different, and we value different things, and, but yet rather like Doreen and Daphne from last week, if you were here, often it's only when those things are taken away from us that we realise how important they were. When they're challenged or they're removed, suddenly we find what an influence they had upon us and our esteem. The job goes. Somebody keys the car. We're dumped. Our grades plummet. The interview goes really badly. The stock market collapses. And that then raises the issue of what is it for Christians? Where ought our identity to come from? Because if we're finding it in those things, as we thought about last week, and, and then what others do really matters to us. Because if I'm comparing myself to you, then what you look like is really important. And how successful you are is really important. And the car that you drive is really important. And whether you've got more friends than me, that's really important. And how does that pan out in church? How we relate to each other. You will know as well as me that we don't leave those issues of identity outside. They come in with us. And they impact what kind of a family we are, our identity. Maybe it's in being, as Edith was saying from Andy, being tied up in a ministry, a role that I have. And that is just so important to me. And they affect then how we relate to each other and how we relate to God and, and how we feel as we're sat here. Am I singing better than them? Why does it matter? It matters because to have a a right biblical self-image means that we will grow and thrive as Christians. We will flourish and develop as, as individuals and as a church family. But it seems to me it matters as well because the Christian faith, in the eyes of many, is all about notching up reward points with God, keeping on best behavior, trying our hardest. And so we don't help ourselves when that's the default mode of our hearts. The world looks in and thinks that's what it's all about, and we live as if it is. And so we find ourselves at a prayer meeting this morning. We're quietly peeping around the door as two men go into the Magdalen Road church prayer meeting. One comes every time, part of the furniture, like clockwork. And they pray out loud, and they pray eloquently, and they pray with authority. They pray beautifully. And the other, he's never been to a prayer meeting before. In fact, he's hardly ever at church. The first man, who had grown up in a good Christian house with devout parents, prays, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the others in this area. Not like the students who muck up our streets and leave their rubbish around the place. Not like the homeless who carry their cans of beer. Thank you that I'm not even like people in this church. Thank you that I have a respectable, admired job. I'm always truthful. 
I'm always upright. I'm always honest. Thank you that, frankly, my life is together. Thank you that I've been fasting regularly in our recent period of prayer as a church. Thank you that I'm serious and committed and wholehearted, unlike some others that I could mention, Lord. As you know, you're actually quite lucky to have me. I'm a regular at the prayer meeting, Lord. In fact, if you look at the league table, I think you'll see I'm at the top. I read my Bible and pray every single day and twice on a Sunday. As you know, Lord, I practically devour Christian books. You should see my, my MP3 collection, the podcast that I subscribe to of sermons. It's astounding, Lord. And if you hadn't noticed, I've just upped my giving. Had you spotted that, Lord? 20% of my salary now. Yep, you heard me right, 20%. And the other man is barely able to speak. Barely able to articulate his prayer, simply with mourning and tears in his eyes, he prays, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. One blows his trumpet, the other can barely speak. So what is Jesus getting at from this story? Again, for many of us, it will be familiar stuff. A story we've thought about a number of times. Firstly, see the Pharisee and see his unfounded confidence. And it's obvious that he is confident, isn't it? That's the reason Jesus tells the story in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. And why is he confident of his own righteousness? Because of an exemplary record. Because of all that he does for God. Now we need to take a slight pause on this. Because very often we think Pharisee and we think the pantomime bad guy. He's the one we're meant to hate. We boo and we jeer. And yet in the first century time, they would have been the good guys. They would have been the ones who had been keen in their faith. They would keep all the 613 Old Testament laws, the 248 do's and the 365 don'ts. They would spend their time in the Bible. Memorizing scripture. So we're not to think pantomime bad guy, we're to think good guy. Respected, revered. Externally, he looks the business, he's impressive. It's more than probable we would have liked the Pharisees. It's possible we would have been the Pharisees. And yet, how easy to find confidence in what he does. So, verse 12. Look at the credentials that he lists there. He fasts twice a week. He gives a tenth of all he gets. Now, by Jewish law, he would have to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. He fasts fasts 104 times a year, beyond the call of duty. And he should have given a tenth, but he tithes everything. Later in Luke, we, we read of them weighing out their herbs. Imagine him there in the kitchen snipping the basil and the coriander and the thyme on the kitchen windowsill. I'm wanting to be generous to God, not to cheat God out of anything that he owes him. And so like our man in the prayer meeting at the start, it's as if he thinks God doesn't know what he's like. And so he says, well, here's my side of the deal. God, here's what I contribute. Now what can you do for me? As a story told of Bishop Taylor Smith, he was the former chaplain general of the British forces. 
and he was once preaching in a large cathedral. And so as to emphasize the need for someone to be, to be born again, he says this. He said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, but church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. On his left sat the archdeacon in his stall, and he points at him. And he says, you might even be an archdeacon, like my friend in the stall, and not be born again. You might even be a bishop like myself, and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The service finishes. But a bit later that week, he receives a letter from the archdeacon. And he says, my dear bishop, you have found me out. I've been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I've never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. Mine has been a hard legal service. I did not know what the matter was with me, but when you pointed directly directly at me, I realised in a moment what the trouble was. I have never known anything of this new birth. And the next day they meet together and pray together. And the archdeacon takes his place before God as a sinner, asking for repentance and saving him, telling him of Christ. And so the Pharisee here, I take it, has this hard legal service, and yet his pride and his zealous devotion to God turns into a negative attitude towards others. Rather than looking up and seeing what God is like, he looks at himself and he looks at others. He doesn't recognise his sin and his need of mercy, but he just sees his moral superiority to others. A few of us have been reading a book on work called Every Good Endeavour. And the author there quotes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and he says this. He says, now what I want you to get clear, C.S. Lewis says, is that pride is essentially competitive Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having it more than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Pride is competitive. It wasn't just an unhelpful confidence in what he did, but actually the fact that he made comparisons to others. So remember who the parable was for in verse 9. We've said it was to some who were confident of their own righteousness, but the verse goes on, and looked down on everyone else. And no doubt a tax collector would have been a very easy target for us. Tax collectors already have a bad name in our culture. They're the ones who make you fill out the online forms and steal your hard-earned money. But in those days, they were a different kettle of fish. The Romans were in charge of the promised land. And the Roman Empire, as you may have looked at at school in the past, was enormous. In fact, it was still growing. At this point, we've got 85 years before it gets to its fullest extent. And then it would have a geographical reach from, from northern England, right the way down to North Africa, right the way along to India, and then right the way up to the Black Sea. Massive block of land, 6.5 million kilometres squared, approximately. And if you're Rome, what do you do if you're so enormous? How do you enforce law and order? You have a massive army. You have millions of soldiers. 
people who will kill people who rebel against you. And how do you pay for this massive army? Well, to some extent, you will have a network of tax collectors, local people with authority to take tax from others, to, to pay for the soldiers. And if they don't pay, then you have, made of way, making, you have ways of making them pay. So it's more than likely that our tax collector here in the story was rich. He was rich because he was working for the enemy. But he was rich too, because very often they were dishonest. And so look at a tax collector, and you see someone to look down upon. Someone to compare yourself to, and you will always come out on top. You'll always be good. You'll always be fine. And the Pharisee, despite being in the temple, it's likely that he's right in the inner court of the temple, as far in as you could go. He's not even really praying to God. Have a look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. The prayer begins, as we'd expect, like a psalm, a thanksgiving prayer. God, I thank you. But then rather than thanking God for what he's done, he prays about himself. The expected formula would be to list things that God has done. But he prays about himself, what he's not like. With his haughty eyes, he sees a tax collector in the distance, probably on the outside of the, of the temple, right off in the far-off courts where the Gentiles were, asserting his moral and his spiritual superiority. It's dangerous when we look down at people, firstly because we don't know really what's going on. We don't actually know them. We don't know their hearts. But secondly, we always pick things where we will come out on top. It seems to me it's true in all of life, not just in prayer meetings at church, from the banal to the important. We think, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have been late to church again. Or we think, well, I'm not like that Daily Mail reader or that Guardian reader. And did you see where they put that stray apostrophe? Or at least I ride my bike to work. Of course, never the wrong way down a one-way street or on a pavement. And I can't believe people are just selfish that they actually drive around Oxford. And at least I recycle. At least I wash my recycling before I put it out. It sounds silly when we say it, but we do it the whole time. There's moral superiority in the things that we pick. Ironically, this week, in the Lord's sense of humour and kindness, and this was pointed out to me, there was this consultation this week at younger guys from the FIEC. <laughs> and it was great, because I wasn't invited. And I'm there thinking, why didn't they want to hear what I have to say? Why didn't they want my opinion? But it shows me how proud I am. So thank you, Lord. It made me smile. But it got me thinking, what kind of a church would it be like if we didn't do these horizontal things? If we could be secure in who we were and not comparing ourselves with others or not finding others comparing themselves with us. I'm not saying we don't challenge each other. I think it's right that we teach and admonish and rebuke and correct and encourage and support and train. But when we did that and people knew that we loved them and it wasn't a power play or a game of one-upmanship, 
but because we wanted the best for them. Not to make them feel small, but to help them to grow. So maybe in hungry Bible studies, we're prepared to be really honest. Honest with our sin about what the week has really been like. Honest as we say, I'm sorry, I just haven't got a clue what you're talking about. Or we say, do you know, I can't find Hebrews in my Bible. Can someone just give me a page number, please? But we're too embarrassed to do that because we'll look stupid. Maybe we're having a dry patch spiritually. And people ask us how we're doing. And we know that we lack joy. We know that reading and that praying is really, really hard. But we just wear the grin and we say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, doing well, thanks. How are you? Because we fear comparisons. We fear the way in which they will judge us. Maybe it's wearing the mask and taking it off and saying, do you know, this is how I'm doing. This is it. This is reality. How countercultural would church be? Would our family Christians be if we could do that? How liberating and freeing when we can be honest. A place to be yourself. A place to find mercy. Because that's the unexpected conclusion at the end. That's where the parable ends up. Verse 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. You see, this, this tax collector, this scummy tax collector just like you and me, brings nothing to God but his sin. He's got no confident self-focus where he can list what he's done, his, his ministry positions, his achievements, his track record, the fruit of his faithfulness. And rather than looking around at others, he can't look to God, but simply says, have mercy on me. Here's what it comes down to. Their position in the temple meant nothing, but the position of their hearts meant everything. And this scummy tax collector, that's us. That's you and me. That's what our hearts are to be like. People who are aware of our sin and our failure and our corruption. And so all we can do is cry out to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you thought the Christian life was actually about behaviour. About being good. About being like a Pharisee with an exemplary record. Look Look at how great he is. He fasts and he tithes. God must be happy with him. The reality is though, as we stand before a God who is perfectly good pure and good. So we all turn up with the record of a tax collector. And that is a problem. Or at least that would be a problem if we didn't have a God who, just like in the story, loves to show mercy to the humble. Who loves to justify the undeserving. If you're here and you're somebody who's never grasped that before, or you've slightly missed that the Christian faith is all about that, 
do come and chat to me afterwards. It's not about ticking boxes. It's not about being good. It's not about getting the grades. It's just recognizing your sin, but knowing that God is merciful. And what about the one or two in this room who struggle with being a Pharisee? What about the tendency that we all have in our hearts? What do we do? It seems to me the problem with the Pharisee is his focus, because his focus is on himself and what he's done, and his focus is on others and what they've done. His focus should have been on God. Tax collector can't even look at God because he knows what he's like. So how do we look to God more? How do we get that perspective in our daily Christian lives? John Calvin said this, he said, To be a useful Christian, I require only that laying aside the disease of self-love and ambition under the blinding influences of of which he thinks more highly than himself than he ought, he may see himself as he really is by looking into the faithful mirror of Scripture. He says we have this disease of ambition and self-love, but what we really need is to grasp who we are and what we're like. Now the danger is we can become pharisaical about this. But we need to gaze upon the Lord as he's revealed himself to us. As we contemplate who he is and what he's done. Rather than who we are and what they've done. Scripture will act like a mirror, cutting our hearts open, showing us who we really are and what we're like. And so then I take it comes a healthy self-image. So where does your identity come from? And your self-worth and your value? What do you care about? I take it we stand in the shoes of the tax collector. Someone who who frankly did wrong and did not deserve God's mercy. And yet he still receives it. As the saying goes, we're more sinful than we know, but more loved than we can imagine. As we saw last week, to, to look at others for our identity... To compare is very dangerous. It leaves us very fragile and confused because we're reliant on them and their performance rather than God and finding mercy from him. And so we walk into a room and we think, well, am I cleverer than them? Am I better looking than them? Am I more successful than them? Am I a better parent than them? Am I a better grandparent than them? Have I got better grades than them? Am I more sinful than them? Is my life more together than them? Am I a more faithful Christian than them? But looking at others for our identity, looking around for the tax collectors in our lives so that we can feel good about ourselves, will just leave us wobbly. Because there will always be people who are better than us. So what do we do? We look to the God who loves us. A God who forgives us, 
who is patient with us, who is kind, who is full of mercy. And there we find who we are. That seems to be the game changer. If faith in Christ is present, he is delighted at my beauty which he has conferred upon me. Therefore, I ought not to doubt that I am altogether lovely for the sake of Christ.